Welcome to the Recovery Hour on News Radio KLBJ, hosted by Personal Responsibility Recovery. Join the conversation. Call or text now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's your host, Mark Myers. And good afternoon and welcome to the Recovery Hour with our host, Dr. Kirby Stewart. Uh, I'm Mark Myers with Personal Responsibility Recovery. Uh, You know, we bring you the Recovery Hour every Sunday between noon and one, and we always kind of open it the same way. The goal of this show is to destigmatize substance use disorders, destigmatize alcoholism, addiction. It's a chronic chronic brain disease, chronic mental illness. Um, We need to destigmatize it, take the shame away from it, normalize conversations about it, try to... uh, Try to get people, uh, you know, seeking help maybe before uh, before it has to get as bad as it gets sometimes. The, uh, you know, substance use disorder, opioid, accidental opioid overdose, uh, number one cause of death right now in the 18 to 45-year-olds. Uh, a statistic that just boggles my mind every time I sit in this chair and, and talk about that. It's uh, like 9-11 happening every, every six or eight days now. Uh, we're losing 125,000 people a year to accidental overdose of opioid. Uh, add in the alcohol, the other substances, the the illnesses that go with it, and you know it, it's a a crisis on a proportion that that is just mind-boggling. But no one really addresses it. So that's what we're here to do: is uh, talk about ways we can help. Of course, we're a treatment center, small, 12-bed private treatment center. This is not all about us. Please, we are a great resource, and that's what this show tries to do. PersonalResponsibilityRecovery.com, it's a great place to start. If you have questions, if you need references, referrals, anything, uh, when you're in crisis, Googling recovery is probably not the best uh, course of action to take. (laughs) If you have a little bit of a plan, a lot of times that goes a lot, uh, a lot smoother. So that's uh, that's kind of my standard intro. Good afternoon, Dr. Kirby Stewart. Good I got a- that one yeah. right. Good afternoon, Mark. <laughs> um, I'm glad to be with you here today. Is, is this uh, our last Sunday? You know, noon? this is. It is. This is the final show on Sunday from noon to one. Uh, KLBJ has very graciously uh, worked with us so that we're moving our show to Monday nights from 6 to 7. Um, that will be a uh, a new show starts on 9-11. Oddly enough, what a coincidence. Yeah. On 9-11, we'll be starting, uh, starting our new time from 6 to 7 in the evening. And of course, if you want to join our conversation, 512-836-0590, you can call or text to that number. Um, we have a, uh, as always, a special guest in here, and and Dr. Kirby, you had uh, Dr. Stewart, you had uh, invited Sean on here. Please, yeah, please, Sean, yeah. The, our guest today is uh, Sean O'Brien, a, a a good friend of mine. Uh, we used to work together promoting uh, recovery in a variety of settings, uh, but we worked uh, for a. a company called MAP. I don't even remember what the MAP stood for anymore. I know the A was accountability, wasn't it? What, yes. what, what did MAP stand for? Something accountability program. And then they 
realize that the idea of accountability can scare people off. Although it's necessary, it can scare people off. I feel yeah, well, for we're finding for personal responsibility recovery gets received in a similar way. That's but, unfortunate. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you got that dig in again, Dr. Stewart. Uh, I love the personal responsibility idea. Well, I, I think it. we help you recover your personal responsibility because so many times when you're deep in substance abuse, uh, that's one of the first things to go. You you give up your ability to choose. You give up mm-hmm. the personal responsibility that you came with goes out the window. Yeah. Because you no longer exercise it. And uh, to me, that's a big, big important part of the recovery process is regaining that. And and as you say, Dr. Stewart, regaining the power of choice, regaining the ability to say, I'm not going to do that today. Yes. Yeah. And that's a really important point. We might revisit it today because I think a lot of folks who do not suffer from addiction, uh, this is one of the features of addiction that is the most difficult to understand. That is to say, when the person who's suffering from addiction loses the power of choice, it's very difficult for for other folks to understand that. But we'll get back to that in a moment. Uh, I want to go back to uh, the work that Sean and I did together working at MAP. Uh, Sean was the uh, director of operations and the lead of our recovery support team and uh, we had a team of folks that provided long-term recovery support for graduates of treatment programs uh sean why don't you talk just a little bit about that and how that got set up and uh i know one of our previous uh uh, guests on this show uh chris gates uh was also part of that team with you back in the day so fire away, tell us how that got set up and, and what you guys were up to uh, sure. in those days. <clears throat> that began in 2011. Uh, I had met Chris when I first moved down to Texas from New York, and we, uh, we started working together at MAP, and it was the idea of peer recovery support. Peer recovery support, although it had been around since the 80s, uh, and much longer before that, um, it was kind of a new new idea in the world of recovery, the idea of peer support. So he and I, we started working for the company MAP Health Management, and we would work with people coming out of treatment, and we would work with them. What I really liked about MAP Health Management is we worked in, re, in outcome statistics and outcome data, right? Part of our job was obviously to support the person in recovery, right, to give them the peer choice and the peer voice, to guide them right in their recovery and let them know they have choices, but we were also there to uh, to, to collect data. And the the piece that I loved loved about that is we would compile that data and we could go back to these insurance companies and we could give them empirical evidence saying, "Hey, listen, this works and this doesn't work. Like, there's no reason." You're turning this poor person down for a 90-day stay when we have evidence that says a 90-day stay works. You know, mm-hmm. look at look at look at the history. You've approved this one person five times in the past two years for five different 30-day stays. None of them worked. We have evidence that says it doesn't work. <laughs> we also have evidence that says a 90-day stay works. So that's what we did. Yeah, very good. And I know that. Uh there's different stays on those and, and 28, 60, 
Um, we're coming up on a break, but what's the ideal? You've you've said sixty two days. I've heard well, others. That I've heard actually 45. came out of map data. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that Sean was a part of uh, accruing for us. It, we just looked at what was the after the break. Are we are we up against? Oh, the we're break up or against not? a break. Yes, okay. we've got. I was just yeah. You you had said sixty two days. Yeah, and I was going to tell yeah. the story behind that. Maybe I will after this. We break. will right after this. We've got to uh, take a quick break. And, and 512-836-0590 if you want to join us after the break. And we'll be right back. Like what you hear? Make sure you never miss a show every Sunday at noon. Go to personalresponsibilityrecovery.com to learn more. Now, back to the Recovery Hour on News Radio KLBJ with Mark Myers. And we're back, Mark Myers, with, uh, of course, our host, Dr. Kirby Stewart. And uh, we've got our special guest, Sean, in here today. Um, Kirby, we were kind of had a lot of lively conversation. I, I keep swearing I'm going to record our breaks and then bring it back because <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah. we're always so fired up on our break when we're talking about that. <laughs> Please, the, the conversation you guys were having, Kirby, you were talking of length of stay and and John mentioning how it's not cookie cutter, and uh, I think that's so important to yeah. through the true disease of substance use. It doesn't yeah. fit in a in- box that can be checked by an insurance company. Well, that that's, that whole issue we could we could spend hours and hours talking about the extent to which uh, an intermediary, such as an insurance company, should determine the length of stay. Uh, that you know that's controversial at best, and in fact, we at Personal Responsibility Recovery have decided not to go that route, and uh, that's because we want to do the work that's uh, required to promote recovery in a given individual, irrespective of the opinion of an insurance uh, operative. So. Our, our staff is composed of uh, two actively licensed MDs, two MDs that are in retirement, uh, a social worker who's uh, actively licensed and is a primary counselor, and uh, a couple of recovery coaches, and our staff is uh, equipped to deliver high-level intensive care to individuals. I don't know of anybody, even people with years and years of recovery, who could stand 90 days of what we deliver. <laughs> I, I, I can barely, no, uh, you, no, you are correct. <laughs> it's, no, it's, it, it's, it's too intense, and, and we do that on purpose, but uh, that's another conversation as well. Anyway, uh, while we're at MAP, Sean and I, some of the data that we actually uncovered uh, was that people who tended to do well at one year following discharge from treatment had an average length of stay of 62 days. Mm. And that is not to say that 62 days is best for everybody, but it was something that we didn't, it was kind of an odd number. We thought, because we just presumed, well, the longer you stay, the better, right? Well, no, maybe not. Maybe not. So uh, the, what, what I learned really, Sean, and I'd love to hear your comments on this, that 
both while I was clinical director for the uh, Department of State Health Services Substance Abuse Programs and then later on at MAP, I saw in both of those settings that treatment needed to be individualized and that any operation that uses a cookie cutter approach is probably not going to be as successful as one that individualizes care. And, and that, the other thing I learned is that treatment is probably not as valuable as is post-treatment follow-up care. And the continuum of care has to include post-treatment follow-up, not even really follow-up, it's just a continuum of care, it's a continuum of involvement. And that's one of the reasons uh, I like to say that we're not even in the treatment business, we're in the recovery initiation business. And uh, I wanna, I, I've been preaching here now, and I don't know if you can save me from myself, Sean. But <laughs> what, Let's try. What, what, do you, what do you think, what sense can you make out of that? You know, do you like my post-treatment, or treat, uh, <laughs> Recovery, recovery initiation, initiation rather than I, treatment? I do. Oh, absolutely I do. You know, I like to say that I am in the abstinence phase of my recovery right now, that my recovery has been going on for quite some time, right? There are starts, there are fits, there are stops. Um, I am not the type of guy that had, uh, you know, 20 years of uh, clean and sober time with un uninterrupted sobriety, right? I've had stops and I've had fits, right? Which is, which is great because recovery in general is a marathon, right? So first you have to pick out your shoes. Are you gonna, what type of running shoes are you gonna get? And that can be akin to what type of pathway you're gonna choose. Are you gonna choose AA? Are you gonna choose smart? Are you gonna choose this? Are you gonna choose that? You choose different types of uh, uh, pathways, right? And it is really about that whole long process, right? They obviously say recovery is not a destination, it's the journey, right? And it really is a journey. And the journey may change, the course may change while you're on that marathon run, right? And keeping the, um, staying open to the, the different pathways that are out there and the different forms of support are out there are, are paramount, right? And being set up for that, creating the foundation, which personal recovery, uh, personal responsibility recovery does, you know, that's a, that, that's a, a huge piece of this, yeah. is having that foundation. That's exactly right. And that, that's what, what the phase of recovery that we've been calling treatment is for and on behalf of. It's, it's a foundation. It's a launching pad. Uh, a lot of folks feel like, well, 28 days in treatment, I go to rehab, then I'm back in, the, in, the, in my lane again, right? Over and over again. And... And you know, rehab gets a bad a bad name because uh, rehab uh, seems to offer uh, a cure, and in fact, there is no cure for Correct. addiction. It is. I understand from and and again, I I make you know known that I'm in recovery, have been for a a, a long time. Um, and being around all of these people who are so much more educated than I am has really been an eye-opener the last year and a half, two years that we've been working at, at PR Recovery. And what I have, have gathered is, is and heard so many different ways, it's like asthma. It's a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. It's not going to go away. You have to do maintenance. You have to do maintenance on heart disease, you have to do maintenance on high cholesterol, you have to do maintenance on diabetes. Recovery is no different, or, or addiction, substance use disorder is no different 
than any other chronic disease. It has to have a maintenance phase. The challenge with substance use disorder is that lack of maintenance is deadly, incredibly deadly, especially in today's world. Go experiment. One pill kills. It really does. And, uh, you know, I, I... I always want to reach out during the show as well. We can talk about statistics. We can talk about uh, modalities, different things. Just if you are striking a chord with anything that's being said today, take action, please. Mm-hmm. Take action. Call us, personalresponsibilityrecovery.com. Email us. Email somebody. Call your physician. Call somebody. If you think you have a challenge with substance use disorder, uh, chances are you're right. Mm. And, uh, you know, you, there's, there's so many different places to start, but start. That's the message that we always want to get to people, and, and I don't ever want to get that lost, but start. Start somewhere. Um, and there's uh, so many different places. Anyway, I'm, I'm repeating myself, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, Dr. Kirby, on that because we were – we were talking about how important it is on the other side of treatment, and that is, I guess, equally as important. And, and I mean, Sean, you, sure. you've been in recovery coaching, and you're part of Communities for Recovery. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. I work with Communities for Recovery as a recovery support peer specialist um, and also the program coordinator for the Travis County Overdose Prevention Program. So we work a lot with uh, harm reduction. We work a lot with, uh, um, you know, the fentanyl craze right now in working with people in active addiction. So what, how, how does that work show up? I mean, what, what are you guys actually up to? So that work in particular shows up uh, on the street level. We go into, okay. I go into camps. I go okay. into, um, mm-hmm. you know, we, so we, uh, we often talk about meeting people where they're at, you know, figuratively and literally, right? And the idea of peer support is, is so important because they trust they trust people. They trust peer support specialists. Obviously, it has to be it has to be earned, but it's usually easily. It's a little easily 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 earned when we walk into there, rather than saying, "Hey, you have an appointment at Integral Care," yeah. which is awesome. You know, at four o'clock with this professional. Like you know, our appointment is me showing up while they're you know doing their thing. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and me talking to them and normalizing Mark you talked about that normalizing the conversations, reducing the shame, right? Reducing uh any of that stigma around it, you know, yeah. that it's okay and there there are options, there are choices for people if if you want to change, you know. And if you don't want to change, that's okay too, but you have to be careful because as you said, one pill can kill, one shot can kill. It's not like when I was getting high as a kid. Think, you know, fentanyl's and everything. Fentanyl has worked its way into the drug supply. You can be doing cocaine and there can be fentanyl in it. And you don't know and all of a sudden you're, you know, OD'd. A statistic. Yeah. 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 It, uh, it's scary, scary stuff out there. Dr. Carter, uh, Russ Carter, one of the addictionologists we work with, uh, made the comment that during his time in an ER, it was like an OD comes in and, and what are you on? Meth. Mm, no, it's fentanyl. Right. What do you want? Cocaine. Mm, no, it's fentanyl. Uh, wow. Yeah, pot. Mm, no, it's fentanyl. That 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 common thread is, mm-hmm. uh, and I think if you're going into the camps, the home, homeless camps is what we're mm-hmm. referring to, um, meth is such a horrible, horrible drug that that psychosis that is induced in that can sometimes be a one-way street once that has been hit and, and it... Uh, 
that also is scary stuff. And that's where we, I don't think the average person that has a substance use disorder who still has a home, still has a car, still has a family, still has a job, realizes that's all going to go away. Yeah. And and how it goes away can be quite devastating mm. um, if if it's in full-blown addiction. And, and, and it did for me. It uh, It did. Yeah. The uh, other thing that I'd like to say is that if we hold it that treatment is recovery initiation and if we hold it that addiction is a chronic uh, disorder of the brain, primarily of the brain, uh, then recovery starts to look like a complete change in lifestyle. Absolutely. And what I would like to speak to is how that's good news and we're going to do bad news and we're going to do that right after this break we're coming up on please join us like what you hear make sure you never miss a show every sunday at noon go to personalresponsibilityrecovery.com to learn more now back to the recovery hour on news radio klbj with mark myers and welcome back uh Thanks for joining us this afternoon. It's uh, 1235 on News Radio KLBJ 590. 512-836-0590 is the uh, number to call or text if you would like to join our conversation. As always, we're having a lively conversations about destigmatizing substance use disorder, alcoholism, addiction, um, leading cause of death between 18 and 45-year-olds. You know, as an industry, as a treatment center, as an industry, as a community, we have to do better. We always say that, and we do. We have to do better, and this show is kind of our part in trying to do that, and and more of the destigmatizing and uh, normalizing conversations about addiction and uh, how how do you get help? And you know, we were we were talking a lot about that, as uh, Dr. Stewart indicates. We like to, and, and I'm going to tag on to this train now. I like to. Instead of treatment, call us recovery initiation because uh, it is. It's, it's, it's introducing you to recovery. That's what a treatment center should do. Not make promises of other things. It should introduce you to the lifelong journey that is recovery. And once you get out, there's a lot of change that has to take place from that. And, and Kirby, you were visiting about that before we had to, uh, before we were so rudely yeah. interrupted by Fox News. Well, I, you know, a lot of folks can find that as they try to envision what a life without alcohol or their drug of choice might be like, it, it can oftentimes seem impossible or overwhelming. The idea even that you have to get over all of your issues in order to be sober, for example, that you know that idea is is all over the place uh, and and it can be daunting uh it by the way it hasn't been my experience that that's true i still have several of my <laughs> issues I, I i bring them out every now and then play yeah, with them put them back but, them back. but i'm better at handling them yes <laughs> well there you go and and i i i get that you you no longer identify yourself as having an entitlement to those issues and you no longer see yourself as necessarily having to act them out and uh, so yeah you're you've been returned to choice you're no longer simply reactive 
uh, and needing the solace of a drug or alcohol. Yeah, so when we talk about recovery initiation, we are talking about a whole new life, but you can bring along with you during that profound change everything in your life that's working for you. It's not like, you know, you have to say goodbye to everything that's working because you don't. Everything that's working comes along with you and just gets better. Uh, In recovery, basically what's getting recovered is our authentic self, Mm. that of us that we're designed to be. And I really believe that we all are designed in a particular way to fulfill particular roles in life and that happiness is best arrived at by fulfilling those roles. That's recovery. The freedom to do that is what we're talking about. So having said that now, I want to ask Sean, what, what is a recovery coach or a recovery navigator? And what do you mean by uh, returning the individual to a choice and to their voice as if they're one and the same? Sure. Thanks, Kirby. That's a lot to unpack there, so I'm going to uh, do my best to uh, give it in a, in a brief statement. So, Dr. Kirby, you have credentials. You have medical credentials. That's what makes you a doctor. Peer recovery support specialists have experiential credentials, right? That's what, that's what they, they pivot off lived of. Lived experience. Lived experience, Hard right? lived on occasion. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And what I like to add to that is, you know, lived is obviously the past, right? Um, We also have living experience, Uh, you know, uh, and I think it's important to bring because we're we're constantly evolving. I'm constantly evolving in my recovery path as well, you know, so I bring my living and my lived experience to the table, right? So peer peer support is, um, it's about mutuality. Often when you're in a treatment, you know, it was funny when you said it's 1235 mark earlier I thought 1235 and I'm alive well I'm alive because of the because of the marriage of treatment and peer support right treatment is what got me to uh, uh, cleared me up enough to get to a, a place where I was able to accept peer support you know um, I'm a product of peer support not only am I a peer support specialist I right now have two peer recovery support specialists in my life right that I go to um, and it's it's more or less an action peer support is is an action that it's uh, mutuality right and it's based off of knowledge experience emotional social and practical support not help so what's the difference between help and support right so um, support is more helping you get to a point where you can help yourself right it's doing with Mm -hmm. as opposed to doing for kind of the enabler thing we were talking a little bit about earlier you know, when we do for somebody, 90% of the time we're enabling them, right? As opposed to doing with somebody, right? We're, we're helping them get to a place where they can develop their voice, where, we, where they can develop a peer voice and they can have a peer choice, right? Because that's what it, it pivots off of, giving peers their, their voice. A lot of times they go into treatment or they go into whatever modality and they're told what they need to do, you know, sit down, sit up front, do this, get a sponsor, um, you know, work this. Work. Peer support, we say, hey, what do you want to do, 
right? It's a lot of times it's the first time anybody's ever been asked that what it is that they want to do, you know, yeah. um, and, and and that can be mind blowing and game changing for people. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's a great example of how the destigmatization process can show up in the way that we work with folks who are, who are suffering, who are still in active addiction, even though they may be abstinent in the, in the moment. It, back in the day, you know, the old tough love approach was pretty much state of the art. And, right. and you know, that works for a lot of people. And for a lot of people, it doesn't work. <laughs> so the, I see how the peer support movement, and it is a movement. It it's, is. It's a glorious movement. Yeah has widened the range of positive results that we've been able to achieve uh, because it, it empowers people in a way that the old approach of, you know, sit down in the back of the room, shut your mouth and do as you're told. <laughs> and again, that did work that did for work. a lot of people. Still a lot of people sometimes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that did work for a lot of people, but we're, we're all about working for more and more and more people. And uh, that, that interesting, you know, we, uh, our, our listening audience includes a lot of uh, people who are in a role of, of supporting someone who is in addiction and they express concerns to us all the time about what should they do. And I wanna call upon, we, we actually have another guest who has joined us, Ashley, uh, and I've forgotten your last name if I ever knew it, Ashley. Garrison. So I- introduce yourself close to the mic there because you have uh, living experience and lived experience with this. Uh, I'd like you to uh, talk a little bit about the distinction between enabling and supporting. Sure. Um, yeah, I have no clinical qualifications but a lot of um, personal experience with um being enabled, and also I have a child who is um, addicted to fentanyl and um, navigating that whole thing. So my mom was a full-on enabler. Um, she would still be enabling me. I'd still be <laughs> living in, I'd be living in her house and she'd be bringing me my bottle of bullet bourbon that she just went and bought for me at the liquor store, right? So Whoa, now, that's that's enabling uh, right. uh, and way bit. <laughs> so now I have a daughter on fentanyl and um, you know, man, I I get it, you know, I get it. But um there's definitely um, you know, I work really hard every day to try to support her and not enable her. I give her a place to live. I do not give her cash. You know, there's a lot of things. Um and I study about what can a parent do, you know, in that situation or a loved one yeah. um, to engage with their child where they don't feel like they're doing nothing, um, but they're not, you know, trying to force somebody to stop using when that's impossible, you know. Right, right. It really is a a, a hard road to, to walk down. And we're, we're up against another break here for just a minute, and then we'll come back and kind of continue that conversation about enabling that's a that's a really important one if you want to join us 8360590512 of course 8360590 and uh, we'll be right back after kind of wrap the show up here after this break providing professional opinions resources and guidance for addiction treatment every sunday from noon to 1 the recovery hour with mark myers 
And we're back for our final segment. And uh, kind of odd, it's our final Sunday show also, uh, 12 to 1. Our show is going to be moving, thanks to KLBJ and their support. And, uh, of course, personal responsibility recovery. Our next show is going to be Monday, uh, September 11th from 6 to 7. That's our new time is on Mondays. And, you know, right before we... uh, Right before we went to the break, we started talking about enabling. And uh, one of our guests in the studio today, Ashley, is, uh, you know, we talk about normalizing conversations, normalizing conversations about addiction. And, and this next conversation, this next couple of minutes is, is it can't be more real. This is what addiction looks like today. Um, and it doesn't... Uh, doesn't always feel good it's not always a great topic it doesn't always leave you warm and fuzzy it's the reality of having a child addicted to something that is of age of consent that makes it impossible to help and and actually tell us a little bit about that i mean i don't i don't mean to sound cliche on that but you're living what we're talking about normalizing conversations about addiction that's got to be pretty hard to do Sure. Thank you. Um, as I said, I have a 17-year-old daughter who's addicted to fentanyl. Um, I myself am um, a recovering opioid addict. So I had the advantage where as soon as she started using, I could see it, right? And that's where a lot of parents don't. But um, so she has overdosed a couple times. She She's really struggling right now, right? And um, and I, I don't want to enable her in a, any way, and I don't want to ignore the problem in a way that says to, sends the message that it's no big deal, right? Um, but I also don't want to be so punitive that I am pushing her into a corner where she feels like she has to be dishonest and lie. Um, so... You know, we've kept that conversation open, and she gets angry with me sometimes when I call her out, um, and that's okay. Like, I know she's not using at me. She's suffering. This is what she's going through. This is her experience, and yes, I'm affected, but it's not about me. Um, so, yeah, I just walk the line every day um, of trying to be supportive, let her know that when she's ready to stop, you know, that... There are many people here ready to help her. Um, And we talk about it just about every day. I try not to make it the only topic of of conversation. Um, But... Yeah, that's that's very important that you not have that Mm. take up your whole life. And how, how inspiring it is, though, to have someone demonstrate unconditional love in a situation in which the person is not doing what you want them to do and you love her anyway i'm i'm inspired thank you it is certainly probably my my daughter is 31 i just spent a week with my uh eight month old grandson there's a reason they give uh infants to people in their 20s and 30s it's it's as opposed to people in their 60s it's uh I, i i discovered that this week um, but, you know, to have a child that you are helpless over or to have a husband or to have a spouse, there's things we can do. Right. We cannot enable. We cannot give money. We cannot, you know, Curb, Dr. Kirby, or you, you said one time, I think it was you, that said you cannot stand in between the consequences 
and someone's addiction. You can't you can't buffer those consequences. They're yeah. going to meet them, and that's just unbelievably powerless to have to deal with that, to have to sit back and watch until that moment of clarity happens. And when that moment of clarity happens, we've said so many times, you have to have a plan. You have to be ready. You have to bags packed, ready to go. Here's what this looks like. I yeah. know in advance the moment they say help, you're ready to help. Yeah, I'm sure Ashley knows exactly what she's Absolutely. going to do when her daughter says, okay, now I'm ready. What are you going to do, Ashley? <laughs> so I, I thank you because I do want to mention that um, she has asked to go to treatment a couple times. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I couldn't find a bed for her. Yikes. There was nothing available as, you know, we are not wealthy people. Yeah. Um, and our insurance is very limited. And, you know, with any addict, when they say they're ready, like you said, bags packed. It's got to like, be right you gotta now. Go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was... I've spent hours, days, months looking for resources for her and for adolescents in particular. It's really I, tough. I'm adolescence is yeah. hard. Austin Oaks, I think, used to do some adolescent stuff. I'm not sure if they still do adolescence. And of course, Cinecore at 17 may be an option. Um, but I'm not. I think Cinecore is a good option at 17. Yeah, and she just turned 17. Just turned 17. Yeah, sure. sure. So but I think the important part is the idea of normalizing that conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, we have Narcan in the house. We have xylosine test strips in the house. We have fentanyl test strips in the house. We like we have that stuff. Does that mean we in promote my car. drug use? In my, of course not. No, you know my buddy Phil Owen likes to talk about it as a fire extinguisher. You have a fire extinguisher in your house, right? You don't want your house to burn down, but you have a fire extinguisher, right? And know have how to use it. And, yeah, and know how to use don't it. Don't you think having a fire extinguisher in your house makes you too damn casual around open flames? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Let I'm me sure. think about that. <laughs> Sadly, that isn't a, a deal. I mean, yeah. I have Narcan in my wife's car. I have it in my car. My mother-in-law has Narcan in her car. We have it all over the treatment center. That's what I'm talking about. We and, need and, more people like that. And, and Charles Thibodeau. Uh, sure. You know Charles Thibodeau. He, he championed that cause. And I'm still disappointed if uh, Governor Abbott, if you're, if you're listening, please... Call a special session and get House Bill 362 pushed through because that legalizes fentanyl testing strips yeah. and that saves lives. Saves lives. Yeah. It saves just lives. saves lives. And, uh, you know, we need to, we, it's a whole different show, a whole different conversation. It is, yeah. But, you know, as we, as we get back to the enabling, there's so many different ways that that looks. And, and Sean, I know you, you know what enabling looks like, but. And Dr. Stewart, you do as well, but you know, when someone says, okay, this is it, I'm not going to do this, and you say, okay, and believe that they are going to change their behavior, that's enabling. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not going to change. It's yeah. like drawing a line in the sand at low tide. Yeah. We know better. Tide's going to come back in. It's gonna, that, that line's going to disappear. Yep. Show me, don't tell me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just, uh, you know, and, and when someone reaches that point where they need help, know what help looks like. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest thing is know what help looks like. And Austin, Texas is a great 
city for that. Uh, we have so many resources. Austin, Texas is chock full of resources, uh, chock full of great uh, uh, treatment centers like like your yours. You know, they so are. there's a lot of help out there. You know, so if you're struggling or know somebody's struggling. Get on the phone. Start calling uh, personal uh, responsibility recovery. Reach out to communities for recovery. Reach out to people. Normalize this. It's okay to have these conversations. In fact, it's necessary to have these conversations. Conversations will save a life. Exactly. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, we often say that we have to do better. And, you know, we have this uh, overdose crisis upon us that's, seemingly just getting worse and worse and when I look at the numbers and see that roughly five to eight percent of people who uh, meet criteria for admission to treatment for substance abuse disorder uh, are actually being uh, actually accessing treatment that means somewhere between 95 and 90 percent of the population that meet criteria for substance use disorder admission and treatment are not getting treated. That's where the opioid deaths are coming from, by and large, that 90%. We need to do better, and the way that we do better as a society is that we provide funding for individuals who need support, who need help in this regard. We do it for insulin, Absolutely. We do it for asthma medication, mm-hmm. you know. So it just it just breaks my heart that an adolescent who wants treatment can't find a bed uh, for, by and large, you know, for, for many reasons, but probably the most important one is the financial. Uh, and that, that just breaks my heart. So... You know, Austin does have a lot of resources, but we sure miss Austin Recovery. Mm. We sure miss Amen. Austin State <laughs> Hospital. We sure miss Austin State Hospital. We miss uh, those uh, facilities where people could get care uh, regardless. Yeah. And those were, that, that was a, a very big honor for me to be on the board of directors of Austin Recovery back in the early 2000s. That's a, an amazing organization. And Dr. Stewart. Next week. Sean. Nope. We're coming up uh, next week. There is not a show. Right. Next Sunday, we will not have a show. And then September 11th, we move to our new time. Uh, hey. Thank you, KLBJ. And, uh, we'll and we be have uh, Father, Father Bill Wigmore. Bill Wigmore, who was CEO. He's going to be our guest, which I segued. Didn't you know I pulled up the Austin Recovery reference? That was pretty slick. You're getting good at this. You're getting good at this, man. Yes. Father Bill will be joining us on September 11th, and he is is such an amazing individual and has done so much for the community, Um, uh, just the recovery community itself, and uh, really look forward to him. This has been a real fun show for the noon to 1 o'clock, and... uh, I'm not sure what they're going to fill it with, but uh, please move over. They'll probably to, do reruns of our show. Don't they you might. Think? They, they might. might. We'll let them. But definitely, yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely join us on Monday, September 11th, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. And uh, again, personalresponsibilityrecovery.com. Doesn't matter if you need our services. Use our services. Reach out to us. Send us the email. Make the contact. Start somewhere. And thank you, Ashley and Sean. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you.